I'm going to go ahead and begin with the 28th verse, although I'm not going to spend an ent- a lot of time in this particular passage. I'm actually going to backtrack into Luke uh, 19 and also into Luke 18, which is where I want to get the bulk of, of uh, the message and what I want to consider uh, for us to consider, I think, for this morning. In verse 28, it says, When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near Bethage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet that he sent his two disciples saying, Go into the village opposite of you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you loosing it, thus you shall say to him because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. As they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said to him, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitudes of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice and for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hiding from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning. As we look into your word, Lord, help us to to grasp the importance of this entry into Jerusalem. Lord, the importance of what it means Uh, for us to consider your word as a whole. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and that you would do that work in us and through us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. This is really an interesting passage to me, and I've heard it taught i've taught on it many times and i, and I feel like this the, this week i'm i was have been looking at it kind of from fresh eyes and so um it, it's known as the triumphal entry um but as i as i think about this it really it could be almost subtitled uh when when life go does not go as we want it or when life does not go as we believe it should. And, and I, I've had 
some conversations with with various people, uh, even people who don't don't live here. Um, and, and there's a lot of anxiety today um, about the political climate, um, but there has been for years now. I think I don't know if we've hit a peak yet. I I don't know what to make of it. Um, but but nonetheless, what I'm what I'm hearing from a lot of people is they they're looking for a political messiah. They're looking for someone to come in and take charge and and. Um, and right all the wrongs, or at least right all of what they believe is wrong and put things right in accordance to what they believe should be right. But, and we, we see this here in the triumphal entry. Because what, what's fascinating to me is, is it, it says that these were his disciples. These were his disciples that were, uh, as he makes the descent, it says in verse 37, it was the disciples who began to rejoice and they're praising God. They're worshiping. And to make it even more special, they're worshiping and they're doing it biblically. They're citing Psalm 118. Blessed is the king. By the way, Psalm 118 does not have the king in it, but blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Luke kind of inserts that to some degree, but it, it is a reference to the kingly messiah it's a messianic psalm they were looking for a messiah and many of them were really looking for a messiah to come and to bring a political solution to their dilemma they wanted to get rid of the romans they wanted their autonomy back they wanted to be a free people we sang it this morning, didn't we? If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And in reality, freedom is really what it's all about. Freedom is what the Lord Jesus offers us. But I'm, the more as I think about that, I, I believe that often we are looking for a freedom that looks very different than the freedom that God desires to offer us. And, and so, they had read the Bible. They had read the Hebrew Scriptures. They understood what was going on. And yet, they misapplied what was happening. Now, Jesus, as we, as we read in verse 41, he begins to weep over the city. Who wants to usher in a king who is going to bring a kingdom when all he does is basically hang his head and then weep over the city? It's not very attractive, is it? But the thing is, as, as I thought about this more, Jesus could not have been more real. And he weeps over the city because he prophesies that in about 40 years, less than 40 years, that city, the city of the great king, his city, is going to be leveled. Not one stone left upon another on the temple. And if you've read any of Josephus' accounts of when they laid seas of Jerusalem, it was pretty gruesome what happened. 
And, and there is a lot of speculation. And I've heard a lot of sermons on this particular topic of this was Israel's day. And yes, it was. It says it right here in the scripture. This was the day of their visitation. Yes, it was. It says it right here in the scripture. And, and a lot of speculation if they had received him. Well, they did receive him. At least on that day. I don't see anybody looking to take him off his donkey here. They did receive him. And they were his disciples. And, 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 and it's such a wonderful line to use when you're preaching. That this the same crowd that cried out Hosanna a few days later cried out crucify, crucify him. We don't know that's true. We don't know that's true. It sounds good. It preaches well. We, th this could have been a totally different crowd. This could have been a totally different crowd that really wanted to follow Jesus, but the problem was is that they wanted to follow Jesus, and they wanted to follow Jesus, though, on their own terms, and they wanted Jesus to do what they wanted to do rather than to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and recognize that he is coming to present himself as the lamb who is the sacrifice for the world. This was probably on, using the Jewish calendar, this was probably on the 10th of Nisan, the month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, the 10th day, which was the day that the Jewish families would bring the lamb into the house, the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan. Now, that gives, that gives some good credence to the possibility of a Thursday crucifixion rather than a Friday. I'm not going to get into this, but I will mention it to you because I know some of you guys are really into this kind of thing. But there were also two Passover days during that time. So you're not on as firm ice as you might think you are. But this may have been the 10th of Nisan where the lamb was brought into the house to be with the family. And think about this, that, that the Lord said, I want you to bring this lamb into your family, into your household. So it was the family pet for four days, and after four days, you, you slaughtered it, and you consumed it. And, and I, it, why the Lord had the Jews do that, I, I, it, it, it never really makes a whole lot of sense to me other than the fact that, that it, it causes you to get in touch with the cost of your own sin. And that a price had to be paid. And I do not believe that had the Jews received him as is classically understood, that he would not have gone to cross. His mission was to go to the cross, that he come, that he might. And he, he tells us uh, in verse 10 of, of chapter 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He tells us even earlier in, in, in Luke 18, the third time in the book of Luke, it says in thir verse 31 of chapter 18, then he took the 12 aside and he said to him, behold, we are going to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon and they will scourge him and kill him and on the third day he will rise again. But as typical... If you look at verse 34, but they understood none of these things. 
this saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. They were clueless. Now, they could have been supernaturally hidden from them as well. But Jesus got on that donkey, presented himself to the house of Israel with full intention that a few days later that he would die on the cross for the sins of the world. That was not only the A plan, it was the only plan. And Acts bears that out as well when Peter is talking to them in in Acts chapter 2. It was the foreordained plan of God. Because these people, again, they were expecting a messianic king. They got this idea from the Hebrew scriptures. And what's interesting about this is that they received Jesus, but they received Jesus possibly. I'm doing a little speculating here. They received Jesus possibly not on his terms, but on their terms. People like Jesus to a degree, if you talk to unbelievers. They, 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 especially if they want to dress him up in love beads and flowers and that kind of stuff. And of course, he already wore sandals, right? So they want to hippieize him, right? Hippieize a word? All right. They want to kind of turn him into this, or this enlightened teacher. And that is the case today. That is also the case in his ministry when he was here in the flesh. They liked his teachings, but when he started teaching those hard sayings, he thinned out his crowd, didn't he? He thinned out his crowd. Because when we start wrestling with this idea of Jesus being God incarnate, people are like, well, I'm not quite so sure I believe that. And how many times have I heard, how many times have you heard, well, my God or my Jesus, in other words, they refasten the person of Jesus Christ and take a little bit of scripture here and a little bit of scripture there and a little bit of understanding here, and then they reapply it or reinterpret it in their own understanding. They did it then. Humanity can do it now. In other words, we're not exempt from this. They were worshiping. They were biblical. Using the Bible. Also fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. is threw that in just for fun, but that was one of the passages that this fulfills. And yet there was this huge disconnect between the joy and the praise and the worship and the crowds and the weeping, suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 at this, this very integral and very important moment in the history of humanity. And yet, we think about these things because as I've shared with you before, particularly in the gospel narratives, they are put in a particular order by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they are chronological. Other times the chronology is questionable, all right? 
but they are put and if you've, if you've done a full, really in-depth study of all four Gospels, they do not all follow in line with each other. What Gospel is particularly out there kind of different than the other three? Ken's favorite, the Gospel of John, right? Uh, but we have four authors, all four of them inspired by the Holy Spirit to record what they recorded, and I think they, they illuminate different ideas so that we can glean from this passage. How do we glean from this, this, this huge, it's like a cognitive dissonance between the crowd and Jesus here in, in Luke 19. How do we negotiate that? How do we understand that? What's interesting to me is that we have this record of Jesus going to Jerusalem that really begins around Luke chapter 9. And it's a very full account of his, dis, his final decision, I'm going to Jerusalem. And he went in, when he went into Jericho, he, 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 he's passing through, and there's this man. I'm in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 now. There's this man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was very rich. Now, if, if you grew up in church, you remember the old Sunday school song. You know, maybe Daniel would like to come up and sing it for us. No, probably not. Uh, I'm not going to do it. But anyway, um, Zacchaeus is this little guy. He's short. He can't see over the crowd. So what does he do? He gets up in a tree, right? Gets up in a sycamore tree, right, according to the song, to see what he could see, all right? And he runs ahead. He climbs into this tree. Verse 5. Jesus comes to him and he says, he looks up and he sees him and he says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. You ever have someone invite you to their house to invite themselves to your house in that way? Daniel has. So anyway, so if you, he's used to it. So if you'd like a meal. Anyway, um, it's a little odd. You know what's even more odd? The guy was a tax collector. He was an outcast. Probably wasn't allowed to go in the temple. It may have been, I'm speculating, but it may have been years since he had done any kind of formal worship. And Jesus goes to his house. And of course, when they see it, verse 7, they complain. He has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. That's like, hmm, so-and-so just went into hard tales. See, we get into that type of legalistic thinking. And, and while he's there, we, we're, not, we're not privy to the full exchange between Jesus and Zacharias. But, but he says, look, I, I'll give half my goods to the poor. That can be translated different ways by the, the tense in the Greek. But he says, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore fourfold. Which is, he's following Torah here, at least partially. And there are different applications. I'm not going to take the time, due to the time, to really get into this with you, but I would encourage you to dig into this a little bit. This idea of fourfold restoration was a part of the law. That tells me Zacchaeus knew a bit about his Bible. 
And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. All right, Zach, we're gonna, I think we're going to see Zacchaeus in heaven. I think that's what this is telling us, that Zacchaeus was born again. For all we know, he might have been with the crowd. We don't know. It says, today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. What does that mean? Galatians chapter 3 is very clear that the sons and daughters of Abraham are those who trust in Christ by faith. He could have been speaking dualistically here, referring to the fact that he was a Jew, but I think he's referring to the fact that he received Christ by faith and therefore became a true son of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. We see this also in Romans chapter 2, verses 28, 29. We will look at it again as we go into Romans chapter 4 for the first 16 verses of that chapter. Abraham believed God, and what? It was accounted unto him as righteousness. In other words, righteousness was deposited in his account. Righteousness and justification, side by side, two different words really meaning the same thing. We, when we are justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, therefore we are now righteous. And therefore we are sons and daughters of Abraham who believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. Again, Galatians chapter 3 is very clear. Even Galatians chapter 2 starts to address this idea. The true sons and daughters of Abraham are the people of faith. Which, by the way, that means that the covenant is for us. The covenant that God made with Abraham is for us who trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you see the contrast between, between uh, the crowds who are caught up in the worship, who have expectations of the Messiah that he is not ready to fulfill, and a guy who was curious but I think more than curious. Guy who was also very spiritually hungry. Short. So he does what he has to do to be able to see Jesus. Because climbing up a tree then as now is not the most dignified thing for an adult to do, okay? Look at the short nut up there on the tree, right? Okay? You know, and then Jesus brought, brings attention to him. Imagine that. Without taking the time to look at it, even further behind that, as Jesus is working his way into Jericho, he, he, he is met by a blind person who hears that Jesus is coming by, and the blind person says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, that's a messianic title. Takes us all the way back into 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
It's a messianic title. He was recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, and he was asking Jesus to do what? Have mercy on him. So Jesus stops, and he brings the guy, has the guy stand in the middle, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 41, and, the, and, and he says, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. Now, the power that healed him, and then his eyes were opened. And notice then what it says. He immediately followed him. I think he was part of that crowd. See, this is within the context of, 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 of within a day, at, at most a, two days of each other. From the time that Jesus goes into to Jericho till the time he comes and presents himself as the lamb. And he uses the healing of the blind man as an illustration for us that if we have faith, then we can be made well. That our eyes will be opened. Immediately he received a sight, verse 43, and he followed Jesus. And he glorified God. So one man blind calling out to Jesus has his sight restored because he trusts in him. Another man allows him to come into his house. Jesus sought out Zacharias, which I, or uh, Zacchaeus, excuse me. He sought out Zacchaeus, which I find to be fascinating. Designates him as the son of Abraham by faith. And then prepares to go into the city of Jerusalem, but catch the, don't, don't miss this. Probably, I think what sheds incredible light upon the triumphal entry is chapter 19, verse 11. After Jesus said in verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, it says, now when, uh, now as they, the people around him, heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they, who was the they, the crowds, including the disciples, thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Have you ever caught that before? He knew that they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. That's my basis for saying they wanted a Messiah to come and kick out the Romans. He knew what was in their hearts. And so he tells the story of a nobleman. I'm just going to summarize it due to time, okay? He tells the story uh, of a nobleman. Um, he goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Before he goes, he passes out ten minas, one mina per servant. He has ten servants or at least 10 that are getting the minus, all right? He, each, he gives each of them a mina, and he tells them to do business until he comes. I'm going to go back to 14 in a second, but to just to shed some light on what this means to do business, when he returns after receiving the kingdom, 
The first uh, can, uh, come to him and say, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. That's what it means to do business. In other words, they had an increase on that which the Lord gave them. And he said to them, remember, it's in the parable, well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. And then the second came and he said to him, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. And then another guy comes to him and says, Lord, I hid your mina in a handkerchief because I knew that you would be a, a um, um, austere man and you collect where you did not deposit, verse 21, and you reap what you did not sow. And then he said to him, out of your mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was austere, collecting from that which I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that you would, that at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? And they said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to those who had ten minas. And Jesus, uh, the, the, that is the, the nobleman says, because the nobleman, obviously, I'll let the cow the bag. The nobleman represents Jesus, does he? It says, for I say to you that everyone who has been given from what, from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. So what is this parable about? It's about stewardship. Okay, I know I'm going through it rather quickly. I understand that. But it's about stewardship. But it's about stewardship in waiting for his coming. See, this, this, this parable speaks to the church. This parable is illustrating what they should have understood in the triumphal entry. But I would say that this parable particularly is illustrating not his first coming, but his second. So he's throwing all types of partial information out. He's not giving them nice, 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 nice tidy little theological outlines. He's just throwing these things out. What's interesting that within this parable, you have in verse 14, the citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him. That is, after he left to go receive a kingdom, they sent a delegation after him and said, we will not have this man reign over us. If you're familiar with the passion narrative, that's exactly what the Jews say a few days later. We have one king, and that's Caesar. So when he returns, the one who did not multiply his mina, not even putting it in the bank, but hiding it in a handkerchief, he gets his mina taken away from him. That is all that's said about him, by the way, in this parable. But in verse 27, he says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the people in verse 14. That's who he's talking about. 
citizens who hated him. The citizens who said, we will not have this person reign over us. Those people we will see later in this narrative. I think by and large, we do not see them at the triumphal entry. We might see the servant who did not multiply his mina, who only hid it in a handkerchief. We, that, that might represent the crowds. That'll give you something to think about, won't it? Because they wanted to follow Jesus, but they wanted to follow Jesus based on what they had settled in their own mind about who he is and what he would do, and it was not correct. And these are God's chosen people. And I don't think we're immune to it. But I think that's the point that we really need to take home from this whole idea uh, of, of, of the healing of the blind man, of, of, the, heal, of the, uh, the, the and saving of the blind man, the, the salvation of Zacchaeus, this parable, because Jesus sends, says this parable again because he spoke these things because he was near Jerusalem and he knew that they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You see, the same situation came up in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. We have a minute or two, and I'll turn there. Matthew 16. I'm not sure where what verse I want to start at yet. Let me just look. Jesus asked the question in verse 13 of Matthew 16, who do men say that I am, that I the Son of Man am? Of course, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, verse 15, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, verse 16, said you are the Christ, that is you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Due to time, I'm going to skip over the rest of this and then take you right to verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. That must have been a popular sermon. Because Peter then takes him aside, verse 22, and he, he begins to rebuke him. <laughs> oh, I hope they videotape that. I'm going to laugh. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Peter. But anyway... And they begin to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this shall not happen to you. 
Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Jesus was not fitting the job description that Peter had written out for him. You're not going to go to the cross. I've already picked out my stretched chariot in the new administration, in the new kingdom. Peter was thinking prosperity. That's exactly what he was thinking. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Peter. Called him Satan. Was he speaking to Satan in, within him? I don't think so. Was he trying to make a point? I think he absolutely was trying to make a point because he was listening to the voice of Satan rather than the voice of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Flesh and blood had not revealed this to Peter, but the Father had revealed this to Peter. But now Jesus is talking about the cross, and that isn't really popular, and we don't want to go there, Jesus. Get on that donkey and kick the Romans out, and let's do this thing. Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Particularly two things. Prosperity and self-preservation. Prosperity and self-preservation. So the answer for that, and I'm out of time. I've already gone longer than I wanted to. Psalm 86, 11, I'll just read them to you. It says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth Unite my heart to fear your name. I think I'll have to stop with that one. But I'll read it to you again. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Do we fear his name? We all need a Messiah. I think the question is, what kind of Messiah do you want? They were so sure, based on their study of Hebrew scriptures, I believe, they were so sure that Jesus was going to come in and, and clean house and set up his kingdom. Luke 19.11 is pretty clear about that. But Jesus had another plan, a greater plan of redemption, which was the way of the cross. So, Lord, if you will teach us your ways, we will walk in your truth. And, Lord, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. That we would be followers of you, submitted to you, given over to your lordship. Not through preconceived ideas or popular doctrines that may or may not be true. But we pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us in these very trying times. 
Lord, help us to not get caught up in the frenzy and the excitement like the crowds did or to be focused on prosperity and self-preservation like Peter did. But Lord, help us to take our cues from you that if any man come after you, that we would deny ourselves daily, take up our crosses and follow you. Even if what you are doing is not what we want you to do. We thank you, Lord, that you presented yourself as the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, that the stone of which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And we thank you as your word tells us in Peter that we are part of that house of worship. We are those living stones that have been brought in to your household. So, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to have our confidence in you. And to remember, Lord, that even as Job declared, though you slay us, we might, that we may still yet praise you. For you are wonderful. And you are a God of love and you are a God of mercy. You are a God who heals the blind and you are the God who calls a little guy out of the tree and you go into his house and you declare his salvation as a true son of Abraham. Lord, we thank you that as you pursued him and we ask that you would also continue to pursue us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.